hello, sisterhood. It's so good to see you. It's so good to be back after a little Christmas break. And we are study, starting a new study this semester called The Identity of the Believer. So we are going to take these next 10 weeks and look at who we are, who God says we are. Because a lot of times it's different than how we say we are, we feel we are. And we are going to do lesson number one today, and it's called God Determines My Worth. I think you could agree with me um, when I say that there's an epidemic in our world today um, about identity, an identity crisis. Um, we, the world doesn't know what standards they should live by. And without God's word to guide them, it, it's a pretty scary place. And I know our young people especially are dealing with a chaotic and crazy gender identity crisis right now. Uh, January 1st, 2019, the Daily Mail reported that Germany adopts a third gender identity. As of January 1, the German government voted on the new legislature, which would allow for a third category of gender known as various, which will hold equal status with male and female. Both chambers of parliament approved the law change. This is the world that we're living in. This just happened. Now, it's understandable for the world to not know God's word and to not put their standards up to his word, but the hard thing for us to understand is that how we as believers don't follow God's standards and know what he says about us. We struggle with that. So that's why we're going to take a look at this. Identity means a set of characteristics by which a person or thing is recognizable or known. The condition of being the same as something or someone else. So I can identify as a female. I'm definitely not various, okay? Um, I'm a female, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, and I'm a believer. So as a believer, um, that just means that I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe he died on the cross for my sins, and he rose again, and I've accepted him to be the Lord and Savior of my life. So I'm a believer, and as a believer, we should be known then as things that the Bible calls true for a believer. If the Bible says it, then it must be true. And the Bible says that we are victorious in Christ. So then by virtue of being a believer, I should be victorious, right? You should be victorious. The Bible gives us an identity that we can own and live by, but even though it's true, we have a hard time accepting it as true. We can read the things that are supposed to define us, but how many know when we look in the mirror, we tend to see failure and inadequacies and inability. That's what we see. And instead, God is telling us we are victorious and strong and capable. As hard as it seems to believe what God says about us is true, we have to believe it. Why? Because God said so, right? He said it. We can't allow ourselves to be talked out of our identity by the lies of the enemy. When we read that we are righteous in Christ, but then the devil whispers in our ear, you're not worthy, too many times we fall for that lie. We're too easily swayed by what looks or feels true rather than what actually is true. So this semester, we're going to talk about who God says we are. And I don't want us to just talk about it. I want us to believe it. So that's our challenge this semester. We're not only going to talk and learn about what he says. We're going to believe it 
in our hearts. Now, Satan fears the believer who knows her identity in Christ because he, he knows if she knows who she is, he's going to have trouble. And he starts at an early age to try to, you know, dismantle the truths in our life. And I'm sure that many of you have had words spoken over you or to you that weren't positive. And these events spoke a message to our hearts that we believed and owned, and now we live as though they're true. Maybe you've heard messages like, you're not enough. You weren't wanted. You're not able. You'll never measure up. You're not worth it. These are lies. And it doesn't matter how untrue those statements are if we believe them. If we live like this, the lie is true, then our lives are going to look like that lie because the decisions we make are based on that lie. When we believe a lie, we empower it. And we give it authority to have influence in our lives that it shouldn't have. I used to believe the lie that I could not lead. I could not speak. I absolutely, I'm, I'm a good follower, and I was, I was good with that, and I just believed, like, I am not a leader. I'm not anyone that should be up on a stage. But that was a lie from the enemy. I came from my childhood because I grew up just being fearful of everything. You guys have heard my story before. I was scared of everything. I was scared of my own shadow. And so I feared, you know, I never even had a, a thought in my mind that I would be a leader someday. But that was just a lie because God had other plans, right? I love this quote by Albert Einstein. It's attributed to him. He said, everybody is a genius. But if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it's stupid. How true is that, right? So many times we put these expectations on ourselves that it's not what God's called us to do, but we tend to measure ourselves by that when it's not what we were meant or able to do. You can live your whole life believing that you're worthless, and all the while you're a genius who is just measuring by the wrong standards. So if you came here and you feel today maybe that you're unworthy or you're worthless, I would, I would beg to, to differ and say that you're just using the wrong measurements. So let's clear the slate and start over. Your successes and your failures, your strengths and weaknesses, your opinions of yourself or the opinions that others have of you, they do not define you. You are not your feelings, you are not your fears, and you are not your past. Amen? Amen. If you've believed that you are these things, then you have believed a lie, and you have the wrong opinion of yourself, and you don't have the value that God is placing on you. So today we're going to lay a foundation upon which we can build because we need to be prepared to believe what we will hear in the future lessons. So the first thing we need to understand is that God gets to establish our worth. He's the only one that has the right to do that. We belong to him and he alone determines the value that he places on us. So what does he say that we're worth? We're going to look, look at a few of those. First of all, he says that we are worth sending Jesus to save us. In Romans 5, 6 through 8, I'm going to read the Passion Translation. It says, For when the time was right, the Anointed One came and died to demonstrate his love for sinners who were entirely helpless, weak, 
and powerless to save themselves. Now who of us would dare to die for the sake of a wicked person? We can all understand if someone was willing to die for a truly noble person, but Christ proves, proved God's passionate love for us by dying in our place while we were still lost and ungodly. When God gave his own perfect son to die for us, he determined our worth at that time. So no matter what anybody tells you, if it doesn't measure up to that, it's wrong. You may feel worthless, other people may have told you you're worthless, but you belong to God and he says that you're priceless. Amen. Amen. He says that your value is invaluable. You're priceless. And his is the only opinion that should matter. Okay, next he says that we are dearly loved children. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, the, the Bible uses the word beloved a lot, and it just means greatly loved or dear to the heart. So you are greatly loved by God, and you are dear to his heart. Beloved is your identity. The greater revelation you have of the love of God, the greater confidence you will have in this world. I know a lot of people struggle with self-esteem and thinking that you're less than you are. And I would just challenge you, um, meditate on God's love for you. You know, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that love to you, and I promise you, you will not deal with low self-esteem anymore when you realize how much God the Father loves us. It's amazing. So take that challenge. If you struggle with that, meditate on his love. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal his love to you. Okay, number three, he says we are righteous and holy. Now, this is an especially hard one because we certainly don't feel righteous and holy when we're yelling at our kids or, you know, making the same mistake over and over. I know I don't feel very righteous and very holy, but the issue is God says that we are. We don't have to work to be more righteous. We already are. Ephesians 2.24 says, put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. We have to put it on. So it's something that we have to do, just like putting on our clothes this morning. Thank you for getting dressed, everyone. <laughs> but we put on our clothes, right? We can put on our new nature. When we put it on, we become righteous and holy. 1 John 4.17 says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Think about that statement. As Jesus is, so are we in this world. How can this possibly be true? It's true because you are in Christ. When you believed in Jesus, God made you that new creation, and he created you to be righteous and holy. When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. I know it's hard for our minds to grasp that, but he does. He sent Jesus to die for us, and now he sees us as righteous. So no matter what you've done in your past, God says that you are righteous, and that's your identity. Number four, he says that we are citizens of heaven. 
Philippians 3.20 says, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. Remember our definition of identity was the same as. So if you are a citizen of America, you are an American, right? And you have the same rights and responsibilities as all Americans. And we can, we can feel things together as Americans, like take the Olympics, for example. When the Americans are competing in the Olympics and we win a gold medal, right? We all feel this kind of pride, like, oh yeah, the Americans got the gold. We're Americans and we feel pride and we, we have this um, camaraderie. Well, the Bible says that you're a citizen of heaven. So heaven is your country. And I was trying to figure out the word for that. So for Americans, we'd be heavenins, I guess. <laughs> The other citizens of heaven are your people, right? You're the same as them. You have the same rights and privileges and responsibilities that belong to a person that belongs to heaven. That's pretty cool. Number five, he says that we are co-heirs. Romans 8, 17 says, And if we are his children, then we are his heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, sharing his inheritance with him. Now, the value of, of being an heir depends on the value of the estate, right? So if the estate has a lot of money, then you being an heir is a really positive thing. But you are an heir of Almighty God. That's pretty amazing. We get to share in the inheritance that Jesus gets. That's, that's pretty awesome. And <clears throat> you might not have a lot of material possessions in this life, but don't worry because you're loaded in the next life, okay? <laughs> you are actually an heiress. I love that word, an heiress. So consider yourself with a crown or whatever you like to picture as an heiress. I like to picture a crown, so that's my picture in my mind. All right, the last one, he says we are in Christ. There are over 130 verses in the New Testament that speak of who we are in Christ or in him. That phrase defines the believer. So when you read the, who you are in Christ, you are reading a description of yourself. So here's just a few things that the Bible says are true of you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. We talked about that. The old is gone, the new has come, you're new. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship and created in Christ Jesus for good works. We'll do good works, not to gain his favor or to gain righteousness, but because we are in him. Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says we are the righteousness of God in him. John 15.5 says those who abide in him bear much fruit. Now those are just five little things. We're new creations, we're created for good works, there's no condemnation, we're righteous, we bear much fruit. When you, when you hear bear much fruit, what do you think? I know sometimes it can be kind of confusing, like well, what does that even mean, bear much fruit? Well what is fruit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, right? Who doesn't want that? When we're losing patience with our kids, we can say, no, wait, I have patience. That's the fruit of the Spirit. 
We can claim those because this is what God says is true of you. He determined that this is your identity. So what are you gonna do about it? Are you gonna just wallow in shame and despair and your past failures? Are you gonna say, you know what, I'm just incapable, I'm not worthy? Or are you gonna determine to walk in the identity that God has given you with the knowledge of the value that you have? For the believer, this isn't really a choice. We have to follow what he says. We're believers, that's what we do. And he has the right to determine our value and no one else. Maybe you've heard about God's determined um, value of you before, but you've never really acted on it. The messages of who we thought we were or what we've been told, they can just tend to stick with us. And for some of us, we've heard negative things our whole lives. I mean, we could be 20, 30, 40, 50 years old and still believing the lies that were told to us. So we have this hard time accepting of what the word is telling us. So what do we do? How can we make an intentional decision to change? Well, first of all, we need to recognize and reject the lies. We've talked about this before when we've talked about anxiety or different mind um, wrongful thoughts that we have. But it's so important. The first thing we have to do, recognize and reject the lies. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. I love the New Living Translation. It says, we are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. I love that. Before you can begin to build a solid structure of thinking about who you are, you have to tear down the faulty ones first. It's so important. Paul tells us to tear down the strongholds of our wrong thoughts. Lies that we've been told that just become a pattern of our thinking because it's all we know. We don't think about doing it anymore even. It just becomes habit and we act on those lies. It seems easy in theory that if someone told you you were believing a lie, you would just be like, oh, well, I shouldn't believe that anymore. I'm gonna quit believing that. It's logical, but it's harder to put in practice than, it's, than it sounds. So we can hear a teaching like this and think, you know what, this is it. I'm not gonna believe that lie anymore. But then two, three days later, we can find ourselves back in the same spot that we started. How does that happen? Well, we might have rejected the lies, but we have to put truth back in its place as well. And, you know, I've, I've told myself, it's kind of a lie, it's just silly, but I have always said, you know what, I just can't eat healthy. Because, you know, I travel too much, and I eat out all the time, and it's too expensive, right? So I have found myself over my lifetime believing the lie that I just can't eat healthy. It's just not possible for me. Well, obviously that's silly, right? It just comes down to discipline. And um, yes, maybe, maybe spending a little more money, but it's just something that I've grown accustomed to or I've grown normal to. And it's not the truth. I know some of you may believe like, oh, I'm just, I'm not a good mom. I'm just not, I have no patience. You know, I'm sure many of you believe false things about yourself or you believe, you know what, I could never be a table leader at Sisterhood. There's just no way, I mean, that's out of the realm. I could never pray out loud 
I could never share my testimony with anyone. What would I even say? These are all lies. Lies, 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 not to be believed. James 4, 7 says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James says we need to resist the devil. Now, resist isn't a passive word. It's an active word. We must stand firm against our enemy, and we must use the powerful weapons of warfare to pull down these strongholds in our minds. It's not complicated, but it does require that diligence and discipline that I was talking about. And as we learn to live by the identity that we find in God's word, we can't just disagree with it intellectually. We need to actively reject it. James also said that we must submit to God. We not only do this in our actions by obeying him, but we, always, we also do this when we make our thoughts subordinate to his thoughts. Now, this is hard. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. It's hard to take our thoughts captive because it's easier just to let your mind wander and go down rabbit trails and, you know. It's way easier to do that, but it's so much more beneficial to be diligent in your thought life. So, we have to reject the lies, and then number two, we replace the lie with truth. Once the old pattern of thinking is recognized and rejected, we need to replace it with the truth. And the world doesn't know truth, but thankfully, we know where to look for truth, right? Yes. Amen. In the Bible, in God's word, it's full of truth. And every lie that the enemy would like to tell you has um, a truth in the Bible. It has an answer for everything that you, every excuse you could make. So if you're someone that looks for the acceptance of others, then you should know that Ephesians 1.6 says that you are accepted of Christ. And if, you're, if your position or your wealth or your title is really important to you, the Bible tells us that we are co-laborers and co-heirs, right? We just talked about that. We're co-heirs with him. Maybe intellect and education is what matters to you. The Bible tells us that we have the mind of Christ and that the Holy Spirit himself teaches us all truth. Maybe your identity is wrapped up in your past behavior and you've been defined by your mistakes. But if you're a believer in Jesus, you know what he says about you? He says that you're a saint. Again, hard to believe, but that's what he calls you. He doesn't matter what you've done. There's nothing you could do that could separate you from his love, and he forgives everything that, that he's asked to forgive. So however you tend to measure yourself, the Bible speaks to that area of your identity. God calls you his friend. He says you are his dearly loved daughter. He says you can do all things through Christ, and he says so many wonderful things about you, and no matter what criteria you use, you can't be defined in any other way but victorious. So when it comes to living in your identity, the question, the question isn't who you are. The question is, do you know who you are? Now, author John Walker, I love this quote. He said, you're not defined by your feelings. You're not defined by the opinions of others or by your circumstances. You're not defined by your successes or failures. You're not defined by the car you drive, the money you make, or the house you say you own when the bank really does. <laughs> You are defined by God and God alone. He identifies you as his own. The thing is, if you don't know who you are, then you're vulnerable to other people telling you who you are. 
But the concrete, solid gospel truth is that you are who God says you are, and no one else has a vote in the matter. Some of you need to like paste that up on your mirror, write it out real pretty on the computer, and make it look really nice, and then put that up. You don't want other people telling you who you are. That's God's job. We especially don't want to listen to our own opinions either because our thoughts are usually negative about ourselves. We have to believe him. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word that God speaks is alive and full of power, making it active, operative, energizing, and effective. God's word is alive and powerful. If you put the word of God in you, it uses that power on your behalf. It works in you actively and effectively, changing you to make you more like the identity that you read about in his word. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So the good news is that we're all a work in progress. None of us have arrived We're all working out this faith journey. And the great news is, as well, is that the Holy Spirit is the one that does the work. I love this passage because it tells us that when we put the word in, the Holy Spirit will see to it that the word completes in us. Our part isn't hard, actually, but it it does involve discipline and diligence, but the Holy Spirit is the one that does all the work. That should kind of let you off the hook a little bit, like, oh my gosh, I don't have to work, 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 work for this. I don't have to be good enough, because we can never be good enough. But we have to put the word in and let the Holy Spirit do its work. And lastly, we can pray and ask God for understanding. Ask him for the wisdom to know who you are in Christ. Now, Paul prayed a prayer like this for the Ephesians, and I want to read it for us. Ephesians 1, 16 through 19, and I'm reading from the Passion Translation. It says, I pray that the Father of glory, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, would impart to you the riches of the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation to know him through your deepening intimacy with him. I pray that the light of God will illuminate the eyes of your imagination, flooding you with light until you experience the full revelation of the hope of his calling. That is the wealth of God's glorious inheritance that he finds in us, his holy ones. I pray that you will continually experience the immeasurable greatness of God's power made available to you through faith. Then your lives will be an advertisement of this immense power as it works through you. So great. I want to be an advertisement of his power, right? The interesting thing about this prayer is that it isn't a prayer for more, like more blessing, more power, more ability. It's asking for more understanding. Paul asked God to give the Ephesians insight into what they already had, and he called it their inheritance. He wanted them to know the hope of God's calling. The hope is just the expectation of good. So we can pray this prayer for ourselves as well. God, give us wisdom. Give us a revelation of who I am. He wants us to pray this way because he wants us to know these things. So as I end today, I want to play a song for you. It's called You Say by Lauren Daigle. I'm sure many of you have heard it. But I love it because it talks about our identity and what God says about it. So take a listen to these words and then I'll close.
we're going to believe what God says about us and our identity. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the words that you speak over us in your word, God. And I pray that you would help us to reject the lies and to believe your truth, God. And as we embark on this journey for the next 10 weeks, Lord, I pray that you would just open up our hearts and reveal your love to each one of us, God, so that we can walk in the identity that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.